The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Every, uh, every generation has TV families that they grew up as a kid and will always associate with their childhood. If you were uh, raised in the 1960s, if that was your childhood, it was probably was a show like Leave It to Beaver. Some of you remember that. Some of you kids, you have some Googling to do later today. Uh, if you grew up in the 70s, perhaps it was The Brady Bunch, very popular show, or The Waltons, perhaps. Kids of the 1980s undoubtedly probably watched The Cosby Show at home. If, like me, you were a kid through the 1990s, perhaps it was a show like Full House or The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or the one that I grew up watching, every Tuesday night we got to stay up late to watch Home Improvement. Anyone else? (laughs) There we go. Uh, If you were a kid in the 2000s, maybe it was a show like Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, If you're a kid now, maybe it's a show like Modern Family or The Middle. But all of us, no matter how old or young we are, had TV families that we watched. Why? Because for some of them, they were unique sets of families, right? Blended families after death or kind of all these unique circumstances. Some were just normal families because we all know you don't need abnormal circumstances to have drama in a family. We can just look at our own families, right? And there's plenty of drama there. And today we are invited into an unideal family and to see the drama that takes place there. And I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them this morning, to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 29, starting about halfway through chapter 29. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book in your Bible. We are going through this series centered on the life of Isaac and primarily Jacob. And it's centered around, the the whole story is kind of centered around three conflicts within the story. And we're at the middle of those conflicts. We started off the story looking at the conflict of Jacob and Esau from birth, right? Even from within the womb, there was this struggle and animosity. And then Jacob stealing the blessing and then stealing the birthright from Esau before leaving, Israel, before leaving the land, right? And, and going out and journeying. A couple of weeks ago, Ben preached on this conflict between Jacob and Laban that escalated, right? And ultimately it was centered around wanting one of Laban's daughters to be his wife. They go through the whole thing. He works the amount of time. He marries. He wakes up the next morning, wrong sister, Right, like, how does that happen? Well, let's ask God someday and ask Jacob, how much were you drinking that night? I don't need to know, all right? Now, the center of the conflict today is of these two, the two wives who are sisters, Rachel and Leah, and the drama that encompasses them. By the way, we kind of work our way back out. Next week, we go back to the conflict with Jacob and Laban before we finish the series by looking at the resolution of the conflict of Jacob and Esau as well. And this morning's focus in the story, as it's focused on Rachel and Leah, is on the the covenant promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless them with offspring. If you don't like babies, you're not going to like today's passage. I'm sorry to break it to you, because we're going to see 12 kids being born. Now, before we jump in, there are three elements of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the, the promises of blessing, of land, and of offspring. And a few people have asked, which is a great question, how do those apply to us today? 
to followers of Jesus who are thousands of years removed from this story, how do those, those promises specifically apply to believers today? Well, for your own study, the, the largest two New Testament passages that talk about this are Galatians chapter 3 and Romans 4. I would encourage you, if this interests you, to go and to read more there. But it says in 2 Corinthians that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so how do these promises given to Jacob here find their yes in Jesus and fulfillment in him and apply to our lives today? Well, let's look at them real quick. First is the promise of blessing. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called to be a blessing to the whole world. This is ultimately a, a point forward to Jesus and the blessing that is now given to all of humanity through the salvation that is offered in him. It says in Galatians chapter 3, 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to even the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so this, this promise of Abraham to be a blessing is extended in Jesus to include all peoples of the world are invited into salvation in Jesus. Next is the promise of land, right? That God would give Abraham a space to, to worship. And this is so seen in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the center of many of the challenges in the Old Testament, the people of Israel seeking after the land in which God would give them. Now, ultimately, the land is a place where God could commune with his people. It's wanting to get back to the Garden of Eden, right? Where God and humanity were in unison together. And ultimately, in Jesus now, this looks forward, not to a specific area, but actually to us as followers of Jesus inheriting the whole earth. It's a looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth where God will once again dwell in unity with mankind. It's recreated Eden for us. It says in Romans 4 that the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the whole world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so when the promise of land is given to these patriarchs, it's not so much today thinking of a specific geographical location in the Middle East, but it's more a promise for us that we will worship God one day, that the whole earth now belongs to us because we are part of this family of God that is included in this. Because we see this last, the promise of offspring. Now, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given, they were certainly thinking biological children. And we're going to see 12 of them born today. But Galatians 3 tells us, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, the true children of Abraham are those of us who are followers of Jesus and have, have belonged now to the family of God through faith, not through anything that we have done. And while they thought of the, the promise of offspring being kids, we now see this extended into all belonging to the family of God who are in Jesus. And so as we dive into this, this offspring, this idea of offspring as it flows through, let's jump into the passage. Genesis 29, starting at verse 31, says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has also heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing children. 
We see the anticipation for the animosity between Rachel and Leah highlighted in Genesis 29 in the, the verse that occurs right before this. If you have your Bible open, verse 30 says, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And so when it says in verse 31 that Leah was hated, we shouldn't think of hated as in how we often would use the word now, right? You're like, well, if he absolutely hates and is disgusted by her, why do these kids keep coming? Because I know how this actually happens. You don't normally have kids with someone that you can't, that you hate, that you despise. Hate just means she wasn't preferred. She was not as loved as Rachel was. And so because of this, though, God sees, and so Leah is the one who starts to have kids. Firstborn is Reuben, and she, she names him Reuben because she, his name both means seen and loved. You can see in her phrase, she's singing, I have borne my husband a son. He will now love me because of this. The second, second born is named Simeon. Again, named for a specific reason that, that she has been heard, right? Hoping now that this will surely get love from my husband. I've borne him two sons. Third is Levi, whose name means attached. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now he will love me because I've borne him three sons. By the way, she may even think this about being three sons because if you follow the Genesis narrative to this point, most of the patriarchs have only had two sons, right? Before it was Esau and Jacob. Before that, it was Ishmael and Isaac. And so she's thinking, I myself have produced more sons for this man than any of the patriarchs before me. Surely I will be loved. But it doesn't work out that way. Now, this is not the main point by any means of the text, but adding kids to a dysfunctional marriage is not the way to go about solving your problems. Just in case you were wondering, uh, there's other things that have to take place. Adding kids does not help fix anything. But finally, Judah comes, the fourth son. Notice the shift in her tone. He will be praised is what Judah means. She seems to be moving past the desire of love from her husband and thanking God for his provision. Now, this whole passage is set up in the first four words of verse 31 that we can skim over, but it's easy to miss, but it's so significant. And it says, when the Lord saw, when God saw what Leah was going through. See, the first thing we see from this passage this morning is that God sees you in your pain. God sees you in your pain. And the two primary people in the story, Leah and Rachel, are both in painful circumstances. Both of them want what the other one has, right? Leah has kids. She has four sons. She's going to have more by the end of it. But she does, she, what she really wants, as you can see, is what? She wants love from her husband. That's the desire of her heart. Rachel has the love from her husband, but what is the desire of her heart? She wants what she doesn't have, but her sister has. She wants kids. And both of them are living in this place of great pain. And why it's so significant that this whole story starts, that God sees Leah. God sees her. See, there's this powerful truth in this statement that God sees you. One of the first names of God that is given in the book of Genesis is the name El Roy. And it's the name meaning God sees you. And it's a story that has many similarities as we're going to see from this story this morning. And it's when Sarah could not give birth to a son and so she gave her servant Hagar to do it. And she became pregnant by Abraham, but then was kicked out of the camp and was wandering in the wilderness ready to die. When God appeared, God provided for her and she named him, you are the God who sees me. 
in my pain, in my distress, in my abandonment, when I thought I was going to die, I was alone. You are the God who sees me. See, we can think that our pain separates us from God, but pain is actually an invitation to draw close and experience God as we never have before. Now, why does God allow certain painful circumstances into our lives? Why does God allow one for Leah and the other one for Rachel? Why does God give you the painful circumstances that are in your life? Why did God allow it? I don't know. I don't know. And, and if someone comes to you and says they have the answer for why you've gone for what you've gone through, don't listen to them either because they're probably selling you something, all right? No one knows on this side of heaven. And maybe even on the other side, I don't even know if God will tell us then. I don't know why you have had to go through the painful experiences of your life. I don't know why you're in the middle of a painful experience now. But what I do know is this, and think of it this way, especially for, the, for any of us here who are parents and have kids. If your goal as a parent is not to remove all pain from your child's life, right? In fact, if you remove every painful obstacle or hardship from your child's life, you're setting them up for failure. And there's actually a term, because this has become so common how some people parent these days, there's a term for this now, and the people are called a lawnmower parent if you do this. Teachers in here have met a lot of lawnmower parents, right? They're one who want to remove every obstacle, every hardship. These are the ones who, if their kid doesn't turn in their homework, are doing their kid's homework for them in the morning, because the worst thing would be for their kid to learn those consequences if you don't do your work. Nope, I'm going to do it for you, right? No hardship, nothing like that. You're actually not setting your kid up for success, Right? If you're removing all challenge and hardship from your life, what do you want to do? You want them to experience that alongside with them. You don't abandon them in their hardship as a parent, right? But you allow them to experience pain and difficulty and hardship. And alongside with them, you help them grow and learn from that. And as a parent, you use your wisdom on how much hardship and pain you can allow your child to go through and when you need to intervene. Friends, if we can get that as earthly parents... Why would we not think that our perfectly wise Heavenly Father would not send circumstances into our lives that we wouldn't want for ourselves, but he will not abandon us in them? And we don't know why he's given us this circumstance, but he does. And he's with us and he sees us in the painful circumstances of our life. God saw Leah in her pain. God sees you in your pain. Perhaps like Leah, the pain in your life is that you're in a loveless relationship or you've been seeking for love for so many years and you just can't seem to find it. And everywhere it goes, you just find more emptiness and emptiness and you're crying out. God sees you right there. Perhaps the pain in your life is like Rachel, that you're desiring for kids and you don't have any and everyone around you keeps having them and it's just more and more reminders of the pain in your life. God sees you. For some of you, maybe it's the pain of relationship, whether with a parent or a sibling or a friend that, or a breakup relationally, um, um, romantically, and, and you're just, you, you feel so broken, so messed up. For some of you, maybe it's a health situation, either for yourself or someone close to you that you love that's just painful. For some of you, maybe it's a job or a career change that was given to you that you didn't seek after, and there's so much question marks in your mind. Whatever the painful circumstance of your life is this morning, God sees you. He knows it. He hasn't abandoned you. And I don't know why he's allowed it into your life, but he walks with you through it. 
And God sees you as one of the most powerful things we can hold on to when we walk like Leah did through hardship and through painful circumstances of our lives. The story continues, verse one of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I might have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. The passage shifts. It started with God sees, verse one of chapter 30. Rachel saw, right, that she's not having kids. So she demands kids from Jacob. Jacob, as a loving, compassionate husband, that's sarcasm, right, yells at her out of anger, right? Like, how dare you do this to me? That husband, that's, that's not the response that's needed. This is not a how-to manual, right? This is how not to do manual, right? He gets anger at her, and tells her, how can I do this? This is something only God can do. So Rachel takes matters into her own hands. And it was a practice at that time that you could take your servant, give them to your husband, and any children that your servant would bear would be considered your children. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, two generations before, they did this with Sarah and, and her servant Hagar. And you know, that didn't turn out too great. And so right away, you're like, ooh, not the right move, Rachel. That's, if you know your family history, which you certainly do, that's not the greatest move. But she does it anyways. And she has a son through Bilhah, whose name is Dan, or Judge, vindicated. She thinks this, this has been worth it. God has given me this child. And again, a second son named Naphtali. I've struggled, I've wrestled, I beat my sister. I've had two sons through my servant. Verse nine. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave it to, Jake, to, to her as, excuse me, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Leah, again, the passage shifts, verse nine. Leah saw, God saw, Rachel saw, Leah saw. Leah's like, Hey, Rachel, two can play this game. Watch this. I also have a servant, and she, at a comeback towards Rachel, goes and has her servant become pregnant not once, but twice. Gad, naming good fortune, and Asher, meaning happy, is born as well. These are now, if you're keeping count, eight kids born so far. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. 
And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So the, the story continues, and if you're like me, when you read this, you're like, what is the deal with mandrakes? Like, well, what, what is going on? I remember I was like, I'm so confused now. Do we just really like this food? Like, what is happening here? Mandrakes, back then, we don't know if this is cultural. There, there may be kind of some like pagan stuff going on here too, which says even more about Rachel's heart at this point. We're not entirely sure. But mandrakes were thought to help with fertility for women. And so if you ate mandrakes, then you would become fertile and you would be able to have kids. Rachel is desperate. She's taking matters into her own hands. But notice what happens. Rachel, in this whole passage, it's as crass as it sounds to your ears now, right? Like, you're stealing my husband. I'll, I'll pay you off for him so you can have him back. Like, that's supposed to make Jacob look like a kind of crazy, passive loser dude. It does. And that's what it should be doing, right? As these two wives are fighting back and forth. But we think Rachel's like, all right, I've paid for it. I've got my mandrakes. Now's Rachel's time. And who gets pregnant? Leah. Rachel's like, what? What is happening? Right? Leah gets pregnant, na names her son Issachar. I've been rewarded for this. Then Leah conceives again. Right? I, I will be honored, so I name my son Zebulun. And then in, at the verse 21, we see the birth of Dinah. Now, the Bible doesn't normally highlight the birth of women. This one is highlighted for two reasons. One, so by the end of this section, we'll have 12 kids being born, which are important because from Jacob comes the 12 tribes of Israel, but also because Dinah will come back in a few chapters. In a few weeks, we're going to look that she will play into the story. So it mentions her birth here. So what we see here from Rachel is out of her desperation, she's trying to manipulate the situation for her, right? Through her servant, through the mandrakes. But Rachel had to learn a lesson that we too need to learn, and that's this. Secondly, is that God won't be manipulated. God's a God who won't be manipulated, right? Rachel thinks, all right, my servant, I'll do this. The mandrakes, I'll do this. I, I'm gonna manipulate God into my situation so that I can get from him what I want. And God's like, that's not how this works. Now, what I, what I don't wanna encourage, and, but what I don't mean by this is God doesn't want passivity from you. Right? Some, some people who are Christian can fall back and be like, oh, well, God will just do whatever he wants. I don't have to do anything. And it's like, oh, you're sick. Here's some medicine. Nope, God's going to heal me. It's like, well, maybe he'll use the medicine to heal you. Right? Like, it, doesn't, it doesn't include passivity. But we so often, we can subtly fall into this trap of doing things that are good from our hearts, but trying to manipulate God with our actions. And these can be very dangerous and hard to perceive. No one else can perceive this for you but you because from afar, typically the things that you and I do to manipulate God, it's not getting a servant to sleep with her husband. It's not going on picking fruit or stealing it. What do we do? We do good deeds that others see, right? We go to church. We give of our financial resources. We serve and give up of our time and energy towards others. All of those are good things. But here's the difference. Some people do those to try and manipulate God. And here's the difference. When some people do those things, they then think that God owes them something. I go to church, so now God has to answer this prayer. I give of my money, so now God owes me this job. I serve at the church. So now God will have to answer this prayer request like how I prayed it. Notice those are all good actions. Those are things maturing Christians practice and do. But, but the challenge is sometimes we get in this mindset, if I do certain things, 
God owes me. Friends, God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything, and our good deeds don't manipulate him into action. The reality is this. If God does not do one more good thing for you or for me for the rest of our lives, we are still far blessed beyond any of us ever deserved. If God does not do one more good thing, now he probably will, all right? But if he didn't, we are still blessed far beyond what we ever deserved. And we can't, in our good deeds, think that now we're manipulating God into giving us certain things. I sometimes wonder if when, as Christians, we fall into this mindset, if we come across as obvious to God as like when kids try and manipulate their parents, right? Like the, the elementary school age kid who somehow just randomly cleaned his room and then comes to mom with a question. And she's like, oh, I know what's going on. And, and they, they think they're so clever, don't they? We're like, mom and dad will never see this. And mom and dad are like, oh my goodness, I see a million miles ahead. I wonder sometimes if God is just up there shaking his head. Like, that's not how this works. Like, I, I see your heart. I see, yeah, I've called you to do those things, but it's not, it's not so that you can now demand certain things from me. God won't be manipulated even by our good actions. And Rachel had to see this. She did all of these things to try and manipulate God to, to answer her prayers how she wanted, but it didn't work out that way. Verse 22, then, and finally, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. The 12th child is born, Joseph, his name, both being removed, reproached, but also adding, highlighting that she will hopefully have another son, which she eventually will in the story. But notice it's not because of her cleverness. It's not because of the mandrakes. The Bible is clear. Why does Rachel have a son? It's God. It's not because of what she's done. It's not because of what she's tried to manipulate God to do. It's because what God has done. And we see here, God remembered and God listened to her. See, the third thing we see in this passage today is that God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. The the shift for Rachel happens in those first three words of chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered. It's this rich theological statement. Now, sometimes this can be confusing because this isn't meaning like how we use the word remembered. Like, oh, I forgot where I put my cell phone. Oh, I remembered now where I put it. No, it's not as if God forgets things and it's just suddenly coming to his recall. But when it says God remembered, it means that he now is putting into a plan of action that will reverse the fate of a person who was there. We see this especially in the Old Testament. And the first time this occurs is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. When the flood has come on the earth, it all looks like destruction. And then he says, but God remembered Noah. It's not as if God had forgotten about Noah. Like he called Noah. He told him to build the ark. Like he was there the whole time. But it means now the story is going to shift. In Genesis 19, we see that God remembered Abraham. And so he saved his nephew Lot from destruction. In Exodus chapter 20, this pivotal passage on God trying to deliver his people out of slavery, it says that God remembered his people and heard their cries. It's not as if he had forgotten them, but now God is going to move on their behalf. See, there's this incredible thing that happens here, that we get this insight, that it says that God listened to Rachel. See, in the silence of years and years and years and years, we get this insight that Rachel kept asking God. 
that Rachel was pressing in and asking God, praying over and over and over again. And God remembered. See, there's this tie in scripture. It doesn't always happen, but it happens pretty consistently. That God remembering and moving to action for his people comes often after they pray and ask. That our prayer actually matters. Prayer actually makes a difference in our world. We see it here. Rachel prays, God remembers. We see it in Exodus, the people of Israel cry out to God, he remembers. You see it in 1 Samuel 1, where in a similar passage like this, Hannah prays, cries out to God, God remembers her. See, there's this gap though, and this is why it makes it so hard for us when we cry out in prayer. There is a gap for all of us between the ask and the answer from God. There's a gap between the ask and the answer. And the larger that gap in time is, the harder it us is, excuse me, the harder it is for us to remember that God is actually listening to begin with. See, if you prayed and like tonight God answered your prayers, you'd be like, wow, this prayer thing is incredible. I'm gonna try this more often. But sometimes you pray and you don't see an answer, and you continue to pray and you don't see. And so you just tell yourself, all right, it doesn't make a difference anyway, so you stop. You stop praying. But God listens. He hears every prayer. He hears every cry of your heart. And he's often moved to action on your behalf after years of crying out to him. My week this, this last week has been defined at home by two sick little kids, which is just such a joy. I love when the snot is just flowing freely onto mom and dad. It's just such a beautiful thing. The toddler brought home the cold, gladly shared it with her one-year-old sister, who, by the way, is also teething. It's an incredible combination, a cold and teething at the same time. Two nights ago, we put her down, been a hard day, both, both kids sick, and about an hour and a half later, she's up crying. My wife's like, all right, go, go to bed, I got this. I'm like, you're amazing, thank you. So she goes, and I hear her up and down, up and down, and like every time, my wife thinks, every time she was a, Kristen was about to fall asleep, Emily starts screaming again, just crying, just crying, can't, can't get settled. Kristen's up with her till after two in the morning. Finally gets her to fall asleep. I hear her come to bed. I look at the clock. I'm like, oh my goodness, you are my hero. Thank you. Like, that's incredible. 3 a.m., she starts crying again. And I'm like, all right, it's time for dad, <laughs> right? Like, I'm no better, right? She, she's done like four hours of up and down with her. It's time for me, right? But it's like every parent's prayer at that moment in the night, you're like, please fall back asleep, Lord. Please help her fall back asleep, Lord. And you're like, is she gonna do it? I don't know if she's gonna, right? But you give her space. You give her space. But eventually the cry's like, all right, she's not gonna fall back asleep. I don't wanna wake everyone else up. So I, so I go in and I love the look on my one-year-old when I go in after she's spent time crying, right? Wanting mom and dad. It's, it's like she like flips over, she like stares at you and she gets a, ah, 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 like the panting and the sticking out of the arms. And it's, she's like, you had abandoned me in my room. I'm alone in the dark, forgotten forever by everyone. And here you finally are. And I'm just like, girl, I've been listening to you all night long. I've heard every whimper, I've heard every cry that you've made all night. See, sometimes we feel ab abandoned, we feel forgotten, we feel alone. And I just wanna remind you today that God has listened and he's heard every cry of your heart that you've ever made to him. Maybe he hasn't moved to action on your behalf yet. Maybe you haven't seen the answer to the prayer yet. But that doesn't mean that God's not listening. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. 
It doesn't mean that he hears every cry that you've ever given to him. And so I just wanna encourage you, if you're somewhere between that ask and that answer, to not stop the ask. Don't stop praying. Don't stop crying out to him. Because God listens and God hears you in your prayers. God, we thank you that you are a God who sees us, who remembers us, who listens to us. God, I pray for those of us this morning who are in the midst of painful circumstances and feel alone. Would we just right now be reminded of your presence with us through every hardship, including the one that we're right in the middle of? God, and for many of us today, we have been crying out. We've been crying out to you and we haven't seen the answer. And we're wondering, is it worth it? Should I keep asking or should I just quit on this? You're the God who listens. In the quietness of this moment, to the God who promises that he will listen to every prayer of your heart. Whatever that is in your life that you've been striving for and seeking from God, just take a few moments and pray to him knowing that he listens to you even right now. every prayer of our hearts. God, for those of us today who have been praying for so long, would we continue to press into you? God, to press in in faith, knowing your heart, that you are a good God who sees us, who listens to us, who loves us. And even when we don't see the answer, we can continue to press into you and to pursue you. God, we thank you that you are a God who listens to us and remembers us, who moves on our behalf. God, until we see that day where you move, would we be faithful to press in, to pray, God, confident in who you are and in what you do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.